Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Congratulations. You made it through 2021 and wow, what a year it was. To celebrate, we've put together this series finale looking back at some wonderful radio that got us through another bizarre year. Coming up, Gemma Dempsey invited a number of amazing women in March's edition of POW for chats and music. A beautiful live session from award-winning jazz vocalist and songwriter Luca Manning joined Nick and Alex on the thread. And to play us out, Third Waves explore the ever-provocative topic of cancel culture. First, taken from our International Women's Day programming back in March, Gemma Dempsey invited the fabulous women who took part in POW, Power of Women Festival, on the show. Listen back to all of the 60 hours of special programming for International Women's Day on our Mixcloud. It's windy out there. Hello, come on in. Welcome to my home and welcome to my show Celebrating Women. I'm Gemma Dempsey and you can usually find me on Soho Radio presenting composers on film. But today, yes, it's all about celebrating women. And the Morse code you heard at the top of the show and perhaps a few seagulls that you might be able to hear in the background are just two clues as to where these women reside, which is Margate, Broadstairs and in Ramsgate, where I live. It's not an area I was familiar with at all, but when I moved back from Los Angeles a few years ago to my hometown of London, I just didn't feel like my next chapter would be in NW6. So I started asking around, you know, where's the next interesting town or city in the UK? And somebody said, oh, you should talk to Stephen Bass. He's bought a place in Margate. I'm like, okay. And so Stephen and I had lunch and uh, he told me about the area and said he was producing a music festival called By the Sea in Dreamland. So that was it. Came down, went to the festival. It was brilliant and just really connected with the place. And indeed, since moving here, I've joined a dance troupe called They Don't Care, which is part of Screaming Alley Cabaret. I'm a regular contributor to the Ramsgate Recorder and a producer of Ramsgate's Festival of Sound. And I'm not just boasting here. I'm just trying to say that I could never have predicted any of these things before moving here. And it's all thanks to meeting a really fantastic, creative group of people who are just so welcoming and open, and uh, many of whom are women. So for today's show, I've recorded a series of conversations with eight of these brilliant women. Lara Clifton, Amy Redmond, Jan Ryan, Corinna Downing, Katie McGarry, Trudy Jackson and her alter ego, Julie, Sophie Cameron and Teresa Smith. And there are many more from whence they came, but I've only got an hour. And uh, in amongst these conversations, which I taped in their homes or my home or out and about, I've included music clips from local artists, Bridget Aphrodite, the Luna Tractors, Fran and Flora, Lillian Henley and Donna McEvitt. And again, that's just a small example of the fantastic musical talent we've got down here. So if you like what you hear, and I really hope you do, rise up and come visit. We'd love to see you. Enjoy the show.
Hello. Hi. Live for you, about to go into oh. Gemma Dempsey's uh, oh, hi. radio station studio. Uh, she's interviewing all the most powerful women in planet, and you, Gemma, for Pow Festival. Well, I have been, yes. And uh, she's uh, kindly invited me, obviously, because I'm powerful in Thanet, to come and interview. Although, uh, Gemma, um, I didn't get the email. Uh, no, I uh, guess. So um, worry, sorry about that. Yeah. An anal in the spunk box. I mean, you don't know, do you? Uh, but no, these things happen. Yes. All right. So, Instagrammers, we're in the uh, studio. Well, my little home studio, yes. My- you could catch all of Gemma's stuff going out for Soho Radio. On, uh, on long wave, short wave. Uh, well, actually, actually, wave, it's it's a uh, digital. All the waves, microwave, digital wave. Yeah. Catch Julie surfing the waves. Uh, do you see what I done there, Gemma? Um, that was beautiful. Actually, it's quite poetic. Um, and so, what do you influence exactly, Julie? People. Oh, people. All people. All my followers, all my subscribers, I'm saying hi, shout out to you all, thanks for the new follows. Uh, it's been it's been crazy. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. One minute, you're a stay-at-home mum and nobody cares what you're doing, and the next minute, you've got SponCon coming out of your ears, Ooh. and uh, people want to interview you. I'm sorry, um, I, I hadn't invited you. I. Well, no, it's probably, it's when anal, don't worry. Communication uh, breakdown, that's what they'd call it on the... Web. But I found out, so uh, it's all right. Well, that's obviously because you're very connected. That's it, see? I'm connected. Hashtag connected. Hashtag Soho Radio. Hashtag Julie's World. Hashtag Gemma Dempsey. Hashtag POW Festival. POW Festival. Damn it. Power. Women. We are sitting in the Green Tara in Ramsgate, and I'm talking to Amy Redmond, who's the performance curator and one of the new directors of POW. And then POW stands for the Power of Women, which is a wonderful festival of arts and culture celebrating International Women's Day and takes place here in Thanet. And Thanet means Ramsgate, Broadstairs and Margate. Hello, Amy. Hello. Thank you for having me here, Gemma. Lovely to be here. Lovely to see you and meet you. And um, we've not met before, but I have attended the festival. Yes. And it's always been terrific. Um, and it's a yeah, celebration of all things women and girls and feminism. So we're doing... You know, everything from under under school age toddler workshops through to uh, moving memory, which is uh, an older lady's tea and uh, reading, a sort of vagina monologues type thing whilst you have a three-course meal with them. So there's, there's lots of beautiful, intimate things and also some really big show stuff, like big cabaret with the Cocoa Butter Club. So we've really tried to programme a really diverse festival across the ten days. So it's the two weekends of International Women's Day and the following weekend, and then every day something across all the towns of Thanet, which are Broadstairs, Margate and Ramsgate. Um, and even we're using Quex with the Powell Cotton Museum, which is a bit further inland um, from the sea, which is a lot of the male stories are told and not the women of that mm. Powell Cotton family. So it's, some, it's about the sort of rebel women of that family. And you've got some events taking place in the Margate Caves, right? And down in the caves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, um, that's the moving memory, actually, the... Um, the older ladies, the thing that I like into the vagina monologues. So yeah, we're up, uh, underground, overground, wombling free. <laughs> so it's a great opportunity to celebrate women and discover a part of the United Kingdom that maybe you haven't been yeah, down totally, to before. Yeah, totally, yeah, and meet, meet people you may not have met. That, and that's the whole point as well, I think, it's bringing people together that, whose paths may not have crossed before um, in the nature of all rising up 
towards equality, which is the ultimate goal. And were you always based in Kent, or did you live up in London before? Yeah, born and bred, um, Dartford, but then family moved down this way towards Canterbury. Um, and then, yeah, my brother's was in Margate, and then I was working in BBC Radio for 15 years, so I was in central London, and I ran, I still ran a club night called Sink the Pink, which is a big drag club. So I've sort of been immersed in the cabaret and theatre world. And then came to Margate about seven years ago and set up Margate Arts Club with my husband, and we, and we also helped run Margate Pride. And then when, you know, when I heard about POW, I just, I was so excited by its energy and what it's all about. And I, I think if there wasn't a POW, I would have started a POW anyway. <laughs> so it feels really lovely and exciting to be on the team as it's evolving into this new collaborative form. Um, we're talking to people like Lara Clifton from Screaming Alley and the Lunar Tractors and all these amazing performers from Thanet and sort of letting them really sub-produce performances and things so everyone's kind of getting the chance to rise up together and be in this incredible programme of performance and bring some out-of-town performers in mm-hmm. as well, you know, to get that real mixture. It's a really strong lineup this year, if I do say so myself. Yeah, well, it's looking <laughs> extremely good. And what's your website? How can people find yeah, out about you? So, yeah, P-O-W-T-H-A-N-E-T.com. We're doing the launch in um, the Royal Victoria Pavilion, which is now Weatherspoons. There's a lot of feminist history around that building. Um, Emmeline Pankhurst spoke about votes for women there, and it's called the Victoria Pavilion. So it's kind of exciting to use spaces that wouldn't necessarily be art spaces usually. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of into that. And I like the look of your lineup for women in music as well. That's yeah, over at Dreamland. That's at Dreamland, yeah. And we also have the Mind Body Day at Dreamland with some really great speakers. And the exhibition at the Vagina Museum, which is at the moment in London, is coming down to be in the window of the old Woolworths on Margate High Street, which I think will raise some eyebrows. So I'm quite excited to see how that looks. And they're doing bunting workshops and jewellery making and stuff that Tati Divine do. So that's a pretty special event. Uh, yeah, right through from yeah, being in the Weatherspoons to open to a Nigerian dining experience at the Arts Club for the closing party on the final Sunday. It's a real cross-section of ages and cultures and, yeah, something for everyone. It's not, it's not just a women's festival. Exactly, and also it's affordable or free in many cases. Yes, that's what we've tried to do, yeah. Yeah, the talk Mind Body Day that I'm doing in Dreamland Ballroom, I felt really strongly that the, the offering for... I have a two-year-old and I, and I know what it's like. So it's about parenthood and mental health. Because there's so much that you know, the weight of the system hits you when once you have a child, and mm. you go, oh, <laughs> and you really need your community because, you know, we don't have that village that we once had, and and we do to an extent, and we do have that virtually. But I think it's really important to talk about mental health in general, mm. but particularly poignant to me with a two-year-old that we we've got each other's backs. Well, Amy, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank I, you, love. I can't wait to attend myself. And so, uh, yeah, look forward to POW and the power of women. Awesome. Thank you for supporting us. See you there. See ya. sat on a dark and rainy afternoon in Ramsgate but it's a bright experience because I'm sitting with the lovely Lara Clifton who is founder and producer of Screaming Alley. Lara how are you doing? I'm good thank you. Hi Gemma. Nice to see you. (laughs) To see you nice. So how did you end up 
becoming a producer of Screaming Alley. What was your background? Were you a performer yourself? Um, no, I'm not. A, I've been a producer for 15 years, well, since 2003. I never used to call it a producer, actually, but um, at some point someone gives you a title and it's nice. But I've been running cabaret events and working with kind of non-stream performers. I'm pretty much interested in queer, feminist, sex-positive work, and I've been doing that... Yeah, for that long, I started running a cabaret in London called The Whoopi Club. The tagline was, the burlesque circus is coming to town. And at that point, there wasn't really any burlesque happening in, in the UK at all in, in, in the way that we did it. And it was a very beautiful event. I worked with an artist who, who made tailored projections and it became popular very, very quickly. The audiences dressed up as much, if not more, than the people on the stage. It was very glamorous. Lots of people I know met their partners there. It was very flirty and and fun. And we had great, great acts there. Many of, well, quite a few have gone on to be quite famous in their own right. And um, the others are famous within that scene. <laughs> and whereabouts was this in London? And we started at the Cobden Club in... I know that. Yeah. Yes, in West London. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we start, it started being mentioned on estate agents as, as a, the area to live because the Whoopi Club was there. Ooh. I know, they never gave us a commission. <laughs> yeah. Then I went on to... I, I had a little side hustle, which was a night at the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, uh, running cabaret nights there. That was called Hip Hip. Uh, and that, that was very popular too, but we, there was no photos or no publicity on that at all, so it's like a secret, a, a cult hit, that one, that went on for quite a few years. I owned this, I had this cake made that someone burst out of on Whoopi's birthday, a burlesque performer, and then um, that ended up being booked a lot. So I had this job of Saturday nights, I, I can't drive, so I'd hire a van, drop off this cake somewhere, and then come back when everyone was drunk at the end and the performer had gone and burst out of it and try and carry that cake back up the stairs to the Bethel Green Working Men's Club, which is where my office was, which was then also full of drunk people on a Saturday night. So. Fun! Yeah, so it's a very glamorous job being a producer of, you know... Of, of cabaret and what led you down to, to Ramsgate it, it has a really exciting history and architecture and it has a, a, a scene that's kind of hidden you know it's not, it's not in your face it's not, it's not trendy but um, there's a lot of really exciting stuff going on there's a lot of music studios there's a lot of music people here and um, there's a lot of like clever creative people who are up for stuff and and also it's incredibly friendly and the people who are who are from here I think love this place mm. and, and are you know are proud of it it's a bit down at heel like like a lot of the country um but but there's a there's a there's a passion within the locals here who who are the, who have chosen to be here or, or come from here and and I, I like that and I and it gives it a very good kind of psychogeography, I guess, in a way. There's something about it that's sung to me and I've never, never regretted it. And in terms of um, future plans with Screaming Alley, are you going to continue? Because it happens every two months, right? More or less every two months, but then other things turn up. Like next month, UK's most popular gay pub in, in London, The Glory, are bringing a heat, a drag king heat to to Screaming Alley so there's an, there's another one that pops up but apart from that we do we do open mic nights followed by specials and and we've now um, got to a point where all of those are programmed in for the year and they're all already on sale so how can how can people find out about these things well we have a website screamingalley.co.uk and the open mics are um, we generally bring in a host who's a, a either a local celebrity or a UK celebrity 
Um, I say celebrity, I mean a, a cabaret celebrity. It's, it's niche, but um, there's super, super talent in, in that field. You know, if you haven't come to a cabaret, you should. In the open mics, we have the guests, and then, and then it's generally local performers, so anyone can turn up, they can do anything at all, and, and they do. And then the specials will be ones where it'll be themed, and I would pick special artists to be in those. Mm, and you, you've had the lip syncers down from the Vauxhall Tavern. Yes, Fantastic. we have. So the lip syncers are a London institution. They started the Bistro Tech, and they now do the um, Royal Vauxhall Tavern once a month. Rethink anything you might think about kind of drag, queens or camp lip sync it's not that that they are over and about you know they are a massive theater experience and it was wonderful to have them but they can come back down to ramsgate sometime well they might yeah, do you never know yeah. <laughs> i think i'm talking to the woman who can then make that happen <laughs> well laura it's been a thrill to chat to you and um thanks for being on soho radio and celebrating the international women's day thank you for having me <laughs> pleasure laura Gradina, O Prince Toru, Radachina. Well, here I am in my home in Ramsgate, delighted to have Jan Ryan sat opposite me in a rather gloomy, rainy. Phoenician day but hello Jan. thank you for coming out on this horrible day <laughs> hello Gemma it's great to be here and it's uh you're based in Margate most of the time yes I am your background was as a theatre producer arts practitioner and where did that begin that began oh my goodness ever such a long time ago um I started life as a as a trainee fashion buyer in Harrods Ooh. when I was very young and then I was a lecturer in further education for a few years and then I just decided I really, really wanted to work in theatre, so made the break, and then set up my own company in 1992. And so I was very, very interested in how different communities connected with each other. So how um, African-American work connected with black British work, how Aboriginal work from Australia connected with different communities in the UK. And I ended up doing a, a festival of South African work in the UK for six years called Afro Vibes, where we, we brought over, well, in the end, it was like 50 South African performers and artists and toured to, I think, 13 venues over nine cities throughout the UK. And then POW um, started five years ago, and you've been involved with that since the beginning. I have indeed. So how did you cook that up? Well, I didn't cook it up. You didn't? It was actually cooked up by Christina Clark McQuaid, who was the founder of the festival. Uh And she was uh, really quite surprised when she thought about it that there was nothing to celebrate International Women's Day in Thanet. And so she put out a call on Facebook for women who might be interested in doing something. So about 20 of us got together in a cold building in Margate (laughs) one November day. And of those 20, about six of us carried on working for the festival or making the festival. And we did the first festival in 2016 with a tiny, tiny, tiny little grant from the Arts Council. And subsequently, we um, became a a registered charity. We now have gone from being a a voluntary group, really, and just kind of doing on a very ad hoc basis, to it now being a team of uh, seven professional women who are delivering a 10-day festival, which happens throughout Thanet. 
and it's a mixture of practitioners and creatives from the Thana area as well as coming in from outside and around the world as well or mainly predominantly we wanted to give a showcase to uh, and a platform to local practitioners because unlike anywhere that I've ever been before the amount of creativity in this area is is astonishing absolutely astonishing and so we wanted to provide uh, a way of people being able to see what there was here and for people to be able to you know learn from each other connect with each other Added to that, we do bring in work from uh, outside the area because we think that's really important as well because that kind of... Uh, it's not so much raises the bar for people because I think the bar here is pretty high, mm. but it, um, it brings in other ideas, other influences. I think the whole lot together kind of comes together to, to just create this amazing, um, amazing environment both for practitioners and for people who, are, who want to consume the arts as well. And of course, this area, like many coastal towns, has been deprived and marginalised for, for decades. So, of course, this this new excitement and life being breathed into it by the new arrivals. But they're also met with some resistance. And we've got the sort of the DFL, the Down from London um, acronym at, attributed to us, which I sometimes feel is a challenge to reach the, the more established community. Do you find that's been an issue or I do you find it's... the arts combines people in a way that nothing else really can? I, I think it's the biggest challenge that we face, actually. I think that the arts can bring people together, but I think there's also a real danger that we become an echo chamber and that we create all this wonderful work and we all go and see each other's work and we love it and we all hang out together, but that actually long-term residents or people who've moved here from elsewhere, particularly from Eastern Europe, are kind of outside that that inner coterie. And, I mean, certainly in POW, it's something that we're very, very, very conscious of. Um, and for us, you know, our public face is our festival, but as important is the work that we do with communities throughout the year. And we have recently um, set up a group of community programmers, which we hope is going to go some way towards redressing that. And they will meet, or they are meeting, on a, on a fortnightly basis. They've been meeting in the lead-up to the festival, and they'll carry on beyond the festival to determine the things that are important to them. And then they will be asking the artists to respond to their concerns. But it's a very, very long process. Mm. But it's actually you need them to be selecting that work in order that you find the work that's relevant. Otherwise, we do the work that we think is relevant. And that's very patronising and actually generally very wrong too. One of the things that I think most of the artists down here are really concerned about, and I think Powell you know, certainly is, is social cohesion. We want to be able to bring things, people together. And, you know, I think Thanet um, is, is a very interesting area because actually you don't go through Thanet to go anywhere. You know, it's sort of the land's end of the East. And so it's very important that we keep these dialogues going and that we don't allow ourselves to become inward looking. And any plans for next year already or? Well, this is my last festival with POW. Oh my goodness. <laughs> which is, is, is exciting and um, it, it's exciting for me and I think it's exciting for POW. 
Um, I think that power will benefit from having new young voices. Um, Christina, who was the founder, uh, and I basically co-directed the festival previously. She stood down last year. And I was going to, but was persuaded to stay on so that I could put together a team that would take the festival forward. And so this year, that's very much been my role, has been nurturing a new team of women who I have to say are all amazing. And they will be taking power forward and I will be going on to do other things. And Amy, who I think you have spoken to already, um, she's going to be creative director for Power. So... I think it's going to be different going forward, but different is always good and always exciting. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Jan. And I can't wait to come to Pow. In fact, I'm having trouble deciding how many things to come to. Oh, wow. Well, there's so much, hey? (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you, Gemma. Lovely talking to you. Hello. My name's Katie McGarry. Um, I'm an actor and a singer. I am one of the directors of Loop in the Loop. Uh, which is an arts organisation here in Thanet, um, as well as the founder and director of Bindlestick Theatre Company, which is an immersive children's theatre company. I moved to Thanet 18 months ago. Gosh, it's gone quickly. And it's changed my life. And it's also given me the confidence to, to really focus on my own work as well, as, a, as an artist. I don't think I ever would have had the confidence if I hadn't met the people around here and that that's gospel like I I just wouldn't I wouldn't have even thought that I could achieve that um and I think it is incredible that and I was saying this to you earlier but that they're all women (laughs) they are all women Ellie Susie Jan Lara all of these people that I've met are incredibly brilliant talented clever clever women and they are really inspiring and boosted me from from feeling like nothing which is the truth I was a single mum I was on my knees and I thought my career was over and then they kind of scooped me up and went look we're all here in Thanet <laughs> so I moved to the beach and it feels like you can achieve anything down here oh. because you've got everyone here mm. everyone's here it's amazing and so yeah I, um, I've started creating my long, long-awaited one-woman show called There Are Worse Things, which is based upon uh, a character called Jenny, who is a failed musical theatre actress. <laughs> she she likes to talk to the audience. Um, she, she likes going for auditions that she's really inappropriately cast for. And... Um, and talks about her CV and uh, and her personal life gets really intertwined in that um, quite chaotically. And she decides to rewrite very, very famous musical theatre numbers. As long as he needs me Oh yes, he does need me to iron shirts and make tea and do it perfectly Now from Nick and Alex on the thread from December. They were joined by Luca Manning for a magical live session and interview. 
You can catch the thread fortnightly on SohoRadioLondon.com. The time has come. The person we've been waiting for all day. So happy to welcome this person to the show. The one, the only, Luca Manning.
Thank Luca you, Luca Manning on Soho Radio. Thanks so much, Luca. Thanks for having me. Um, t- before we get into it, tell us a little bit about that song. You've you've written that fairly recently, mm. I understand. Yeah, I suppose. Um, I've been writing a lot of music recently, and that was probably the earliest of the recent burst of writing. So for me, it feels like I wrote it a while ago, but in terms of the type of adventures I've been going down, um, that is something quite recent. It's a tune called Concrete Kiss. And I think just a lot has changed in my life recently. So I've I've been thinking about the big stuff, like identity and home and and just questioning a lot of aspects of myself and and figuring it all out. And it's, you know, it's it's... It's bloody weird, isn't it, life? Yeah. So it's forever, um, right? Like yeah. the, the 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 figuring it out bit. Yeah, it's kind of it's it's forever and it's ongoing and and that that tune is a a recurring question in it that that asks. So tell me what you think makes you a man and kind of like you know you can ponder what you will of that phrase. But yeah, I'm I'm quite happy with that tune. I think I was listening to a lot of like that Leanne the Havis record and mm. and Moses mm, yeah. and just thinking about that. You know, I, I'm writing on Uke now, which is hilarious. It's like, I don't know who the hell decided to give me one of these, but <laughs> it's fun because I don't know what I'm doing at all. So, like, it just, it's all kind of shapes and sounds and, like, I couldn't tell you what chords I even just used, you know. Yeah, but that's prob- that could be an advantage in a way and getting something really uh, individual and unique out of it. Because if you, if you were playing, if you studied the piano for 15 years, mm. you'd probably get stuck in your little pockets that's exactly what i find like this is brand new to you yeah it's, it's super exciting like because i went to to college down here and went to jazz college and i could sit and talk to you about skills for for far <laughs> too long and and i think there's a really nice abandon when you when you throw that all away and and dive into something new and that's kind of what i'm about right now there's a great bowie quote um that feeney Beerman told me about where he says you know you've got to like walk into the water and just at the moment where your feet aren't quite touching the ground anymore, that's where the magic happens. And yeah. I think now as an artist, I'm always looking for that feeling. I don't want to yeah. feel like I'm just going through the motions. And when I sit at the piano or when I, you know, write in that way that I've always written, I feel like I'm just going through a set of processes and that's, that's boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said two things just there. You said you've been thinking a lot about home and identity. So I'd love to talk about both of those things. And we could start with home. Mm. Uh, because Gla- you you hail from Glasgow, is that yeah. Right? So I, I would love to just talk about Glasgow in general because uh, I've got a little bit of uh, I'm a little bit romantic about Scotland. Yeah, I'm naive. I don't know too much about Scotland, but I've met a lot of Scottish friends and a lot of Scottish people, yeah. and I've been a couple times. And I think they're the wittiest people on the planet. And and can you talk to me a little bit about how maybe being a Glaswegian has shaped your um. Yeah, just your your worldview and and what it was like growing up in Glasgow, and yeah, you just said I've been thinking a lot about home and, and yeah. Identity. I mean, I I love Glasgow, and I definitely have a romantic notion towards it as well. And like, it's I think the best thing about being a Ouija is that we have the crack, like we have humour, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, and you know, the, the, it's interesting because when I think about home now, especially in terms of how it relates to my identity. There is definitely like a harsh kind of West of Scotland male thing that I always found quite alien. And I was like, where do I fit in this um, as a young person growing up? But then I always found 
my people and like, I think Glasgow especially as a city like has an amazing music scene, art scene, a fucking great night out. Um, you know, I was like in the Berkeley suite at far too young an age, dancing <laughs> to Andy Weatherhall and but those experiences really like shaped me and like in my music and my identity and like I think there was just so much on offer and, and then coming to London it was like an extension of that. And like I really see home as like wherever you find it like in the moment mm. in the day it changes mm. daily like mm. like I, I don't really feel like and especially like spatially in terms of like material objects like you know like my mum recently sold our like family home that I grew up in so I don't feel like when I go home I have like a room that has my teddy bear in it when I was three <laughs> it's, it's not that it's about yeah. like a sense of like it's almost like nostalgia for me now it's sense like belonging, I, I have this romantic Mem- yeah there's a community that I belong to up there in terms of the jazz scene and the music scene and then there's also like a romantic nostalgia in terms of like growing up and fucking finding myself and just having a crazy time but then I'm currently doing the same again in London so I know that in time I'll have the same view of here probably so I I really began to think that it, I think rigidity in any thing in any form is, is a bit of a problem so I think home shouldn't ever be like one one idea is it's a lot of things isn't it it's, it's yeah. but i yeah. love being a Ouija. i love it and i love tatty scones and i miss them a lot <laughs> not for, uh, not to forget the square sausage well, well. i'm a vegan now oh, but i did love respect, a square respect. sausage respect. hey <laughs> i see you but i mean uh, i don't know i did love a square sausage so I've, I've eaten i've eaten my fair share let's say and the first time i met you luca i think i, I want to say it was 2018 or maybe even 2017 you were mm. performing at the glasgow jazz festival and yeah. to see to see you come down to london i mean i know you were uh, you were studying down here as well but to see you come down and your transformation personally and also as an artist has been remarkable mm. you know do you want to talk a little bit about that since you've since you've made down here your home well, yeah, I do feel like I've changed a lot. I mean, I mean, some of my friends that have known me a long time remind me, humble me, and say, no, you are the same person, you know? <laughs> Don't forget that. Um, but I've definitely grown a lot, and I think it's just, like, quite a... You know, like, 18 to 22 is, like, a lot... You know, a year can be, like, 10 years. Like, mm. you know, I, I feel like life has been visceral and crazy and I, I just moved down to London and wanted to immerse myself in everything and I think at the time that you met me yeah I was like discovering Ronnie's and a lot of people that helped me on my way like you know we'd spoken about Leanne Carroll, Ian oh. Shaw, Jamie Sally. You're a friend of Leanne Carroll? Leanne's like the reason I'm singing like oh, in the jazz man. thing especially. I, I didn't like, know that I didn't know that. I met Leanne when I was like 15 and I was like I didn't know what jazz was at all. Yeah um, I love this woman so much. I mean yeah, yeah. just I was like whatever that is I want to do that yeah. and yeah. like and I think stylistically like it it's universal. Straight for it's, the soul, it's just about song and it's about yeah. storytelling and like that is so authentic and and what Leanne does and like if I can carry that into what I do, then, you know, she taught me so much. And I mean, I'd been in London like three months and I got to sing with her at Ronnie's like for one of our cold turkey shows. And like that, from that moment, it was like, I mean, to give me that opportunity, like when I was like 18 was just like mad, like, She's so she's giving. so beautiful. She's so, so giving, giving, isn't she? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's the reason I I went and got a job at yeah. Ronnie's for fifteen yeah. years. You know, because I saw <laughs> yeah. her front row at Ronnie's, and and like you say, she just gives so much of herself, and she goes straight to the soul. And you just think this is it, it doesn't get any better. It's real stuff. It's yeah. real life, and and yeah, I think I I was just so taken by that, and I did a lot of 
exploring in London and I, I was in college and I was working very hard and partying really hard and and then like the pandemic came and I had time to kind of like stop for a minute and mm. I made a lot of changes in my life. I I take life a lot slower now and I don't party as much actually. But I have a kind of new I feel like I'm a lot more confident as a person. Like I can mm. sit in a room and I, I know who I am and I'm quite happy with what I make in the world yeah. and that's hard <laughs> to to come by. So I'm I'm kind of luxuriant in that a bit right now. Like I'm genuinely really happy with how I exist and, and the people mm. that I share my life with and mm. and I just I, yeah I think that's what the kind of whole mental times over the past couple of years have taught me to to find joy in the in the smaller things and yeah that's been fun well congrats on all that success I think that's that's uh, something to be applauded yeah, I'm, a, I'm a damn wrecking ball <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're, we're a mess well, oh, done, don't well worry done, like, well I, I, well I fully, done for figuring it out <laughs> fully identify with chaotic behaviour trust me I could sit here and do a whole series of shows on 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 you know examples of me being chaotic but <laughs> i wanted to ask as well about this um i understand you're a roundhouse resident artist yeah that was just announced like literally today yeah yeah, 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 yeah. tell me about that well basically i think i went and w- went to conservatoire to study jazz i got a degree in jazz singing how niche um and you go to this college and it's i had an amazing time at guildhall and i had amazing teachers and met amazing people but it's it's like one very very niche thing that you get really good at, and and I didn't really grow up with jazz music. I, I fell in love with it and immersed myself in it and love it as a process and an art form. But I was brought up on what music was on in my house, and that could be Bjork or Bronski beat or mm. the Specials or Donna Summer or The Damned. It was super wide and varied. And I think graduating from college, I wanted to kind of abandon myself from rigid labels and. And I was looking for an opportunity to... Well, first of all, I was like, I need a real job to pay my rent. So I got a job in a coffee shop, which I love. Um, and then I was looking for an opportunity to create that wasn't tied in any way to the scene that had been existing, in, which was the jazz scene. And I saw an opportunity with the Roundhouse. They run a resident artist programme over 12 months where they take five music residents and five performing arts residents. So they could be theatre makers or poets. or I think they've had like aerial circus performers in the past. Yeah. And I love what the Roundhouse is about. They're super community orientated. I love the venue. And they were mad enough to let me on it. And, <laughs> and that's me for the next 12 months, getting to create stuff and be mentored. And Amazing. Yeah. Congratulations, so, Matt. You, Thanks. Yeah. So when you're the artist in residence, that mean you, you go in five days a week for X amount of time and you have so a space that's yours? And Yeah, so there's certain like stuff that's that's programmed like each month we have a masterclass focusing on like, a different aspect of the industry you get check-ins with the producers there um, and then it's really short it's a bit like college you get what you put in so I try and go a couple of times a week I was there earlier on today before I came here and yeah you get to use all the spaces whether it's recording or um, you know rehearsing or whatever or writing um, I, I like I like having that space to go out and write in because I think after a couple of years everyone making bedroom music like I feel quite I, I like an alternate space to go and yeah. work in. It feels yeah. like I'm showing up to work in a way. Yeah, yeah. And even today, I was feeling really uninspired. I didn't have a plan for what I was going to do and and I didn't have any ideas, but I was like, if I just go, get on the tube and go and show up, um, something, something will come. Happen. And it did, you know, it's, it's really it's really amazing how that can um, transpire. So yeah, you, you, get, you get lots of opportunities and 
I just love everyone and I love the other residents like they're all Brilliant. just beautiful and and I'm already like collaborating with them oh, and wow. it's just a great community to be a part of that's not tied to any one seeing yeah. everyone's a multidisciplinary artist I snore at that word but like everyone's a creator of things you a know polymath <laughs> a polymath you know we, we all diversify our, our abilities to oh, <laughs> fucking hell but, and, um, and the masterclass yeah. thing are you are you giving that no, Are so you... in our induction, actually, yeah. it was really cool. So in our induction, they asked us all, like, three things that we would like to kind of learn more about. And then we all stuck them up on a board and then they've tailored the masterclasses to, to that. So yeah. they bring in people. So our first one was on, like, funding. So we had people from Arts Council and PRS and come and talk to us about how it all works <clears> and how we can get money. <laughs> and mm. then we had one recently on, like, digital marketing, social media, and then we maybe have someone, like... Um, cross arts collaboration or like stagecraft or just different things like that that yeah. help you because everyone comes at it from a completely different background and and it's really diverse in terms of like mm. some people have studied some people haven't some people have just started in their journey some people have been doing it a long time so it's really just you know how they can support us in any way you know which is great I think yeah. it's a good time to listen to a tune you've just recently re well just take out the word just you've <laughs> recently released yeah. yeah, do you mind if From we play this, this time? This time, yeah, we really yeah, we, go for we it. rinsed this when it came, first came out. It's, it's quite a bop, right? It's cute. Like, and we also <laughs> wanted to play it just to show the diversity of your music as well, yeah. because this is a real, you know, I haven't heard anything like this before or since, but I love that you did this. I'm really glad I did it too. It was like dark January lockdown, and me and the other artists, especially Bella, like grew up on the Glasgow scene together, drinking lots of red wine at Nice and Sleazy's. And <laughs> it was so nice. We did it all completely remotely. Like we all, you know, they were in Leeds, I was in London. We shot a video, it was super DIY, we self-released. And I, I'd been listening to a lot of great stuff like Tom Mesh and you No know, Name and all that for a long time. And I wanted to do something that existed in that sound world. And this was my offering for that kind of thing. This time we won't be defined, we won't go our minds on Move slow and just let it go, maybe I'll go your way. As promised, a snippet from Third Waves from June this year. Delve in for an exploration of how we hold people and organisations accountable and separate the art from the artist, also known as the phenomenon of cancel culture. For your third wave's fix, catch them bi-monthly on Tuesdays. Okay, so this episode is about cancel culture. Um, I thought to start off, like maybe we could just have a quick round of what that term actually means to you, like how you understand it. For me, it is a term that kind of invokes, I guess, uh, people rallying around uh, a particular issue or wrongdoing uh, by either a person, a mainstream figure, an organisation or a group of people um, and actively condemning their actions or what they stand for and, and saying it's not in line with their values and doing this by, let's say, not endorsing them financially, whether that's not listening to their music or watching their films or um, allowing them to have any platform of any sorts. Um, I think it has changed to mean a lot more over the time and has been co-opted by uh, 
I guess, more right-leaning people as something that is, I guess, a negative in our society. Yeah, I think over the years, cancel culture has almost been smeared with quite a negative brush. But for me, when I think about what it can be in effect, I think it's about holding people to account. And that's both the people who you're speaking out against. And also from a consumer side, it's asking people to think about the wider mechanics of things, as opposed to supporting things which they might not necessarily actually believe in or want to support ethically. Yeah, I think for me, that accountability part is the is the bit that I sort of always latch on to the most. Like someone, you know, something coming out that someone's done something not great and them just being fired from their job. Like, you know, somebody who's maybe like a public figure or a famous actor on a show, like even if it's a lead, you know, that show getting cancelled because the lead is like, they can't carry on with this person being representing the network or whatnot. Um, yeah, that's kind of kind of how I how I always engage with it. The main one for me was Louis C.K. Um, I find him like I used to find his comedy. Well, I mean, it's still really good, I guess. But yeah, since it came out that you know his strange behaviors and not understanding his power over over the people that he sexually harassed. I, I I tried to like quite recently I tried to watch some stand up by him and it was just really uncomfortable. I felt like I could separate his work from him as an individual, but even going in with that open mind and it was watching something that had come out a bit previously, not like new material or anything, like stuff that I even knew, you know. I still couldn't I just couldn't like it just felt really uncomfortable to watch it and it was just yeah, it was just like feels really in those kind of instances, like someone who's been, you know, inspiring and and someone who you look up to from like an intellectual point of view. It just feels like really disappointing. And and for that reason, I think probably for a lot of people is like almost like quite a personal topic, even if it's you're not personally involved in these these situations. I don't know. How do you do you guys have any like personal stories or like heroes or any like experiences with it? Like you know, I think it's quite interesting because uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking um, there is, as we will probably talk about it a bit, there is a line between um, trial by public opinion um, and reasons for genuine concern that, that comes to light. Uh, and that is still kind of left to public opinion because sometimes it's not consistent. Um, one of the things that I think was quite interesting more recently I think I saw this week was Lindsay Ellis who is a YouTuber uh, quite well known and she usually kind of puts out think pieces um, on all sorts of topics uh, whether it's theatre production or films or you know feminism and you know sexuality and all that kind of thing um, and she said she kind of spoke about how she recently became a, a cancelled and she took it uh, took it as her own kind of um, in her own way, you know, quite sarcastic and kind of deadpan in her response, um, and spoke about how, you know, the context of which she made her Twitter comment um, was completely misunderstood. And when she reread it, you could tell, yeah, this is a bit random. 
and a lot was read into it. And then loads of people on Twitter just jumped and piled on it and then started digging out receipts of why she is, for some people, racist and transphobic, even though she had made, made a video just like a couple of times before saying, you know, how she supports, you know, the trans movement and how she's against TERFs, you know, and her beliefs. And she then kind of proceeded to go through all the receipts because she's been on YouTube for about 16 years. And she was like, I am going to ding a bell and um, take a shot every time I believe a genuine apology is warranted and I will apologise. And so she (laughs) went through everything she's ever done, um, even the ones where she's like, well, this is clearly someone misconstruing, but okay, cool. I can see why that might be seen as that. And it made me think about how the idea of cancel culture has become so pervasive in our, I guess, mainstream society where anyone feels like it can be victim of cancelling and then at the same time, sometimes it can be seen as losing its weight because anyone can be cancelled and because it's um, something that, I guess, can be rallied around very quickly um, and, and, like I said, court of opinion by public people it's very easy for people to kind of read into things and go, look, here's the reasons why you shouldn't like like Lindsay Ellis. So for me, I thought this topic was quite poignant um, just because having watched that video um, and she made a point that I'll bring up later on in this episode that I think kind of is one of the factors for why it's more pervasive in this time. Ooh, a teaser. Love it. Love it, a teaser. This track is uh, Ego Death, uh, and it's by Cancel Culture and Masked Man, featuring Kairu, Nico Hore, and Damien Burbank. Um, I think for me, I've always questioned how accurate the word cancel is for certain individuals. Like, I think sometimes people who uh, rally against or argue that they've been cancelled um haven't actually been cancelled in some instances they've been corrected or they've been questioned or they've been asked to apologize that is like I would say my main sort of examples I pull towards the topic has always been instances where people are like oh you know similarly I know we're going to talk about JK Rowling but JK Rowling is apparently cancelled and I would argue that she largely isn't it's more this question of is that actually an accurate way of describing what people are doing if people are just asking you to think about what you've done um that's been my biggest sort of entrance into the topic yeah okay well maybe before we get like more like specifically into the idea of like boycotting and what it actually means like someone being cancelled and and all that kind of stuff I just wanted to like go over some of the areas that council culture kind of touches with um and i think notably like the the me too movement is one that i feel like is probably the the loudest um overlap in a way to this because i think as cancelling council culture at its best is a kind of a shorthand of just talking about boycotting something that you don't agree with I think with the intersection of the Me Too movement, that has been one of the um, ways in which organisers and activists have tried to rally people behind a message or behind, yeah, boycotting someone, basically. I'm thinking of the Mute R. Kelly movement 
and you know the the founder of me, the Me Too movement is like really behind that. And but what's quite odd about it all is that then it kind of falls into a space where it intersects with like political correctness. Um, I know Rona, you recently like came across this funny situation with someone that you worked with who like made an innocent joke about something and they were worried about being cancelled right obviously cancel culture does have this sort of like I think if you're a celebrity you're almost afraid of saying the wrong thing now there's various ways in which I feel like things can be cancelled and the terminology is used in various ways so for example, I was I was just thinking about how if we could we cancel or could we consider the Montgomery bus boycott of the nineteen fifties when African Americans decided they are not going to be getting on buses and not using the um, I guess using their economic power to support a, a organization or company that is not going to allow them to the equal rights on a bus um, and you know rallied around finding various ways. So in a weird way, I was thinking that could be seen as an, an, a form of cancelling. You're cancelling the Montgomery bus buses. Um, it's just that right now we have the internet with Twitter and social media to rally around and make that more of a quicker thing. Um, and another thing that I was thinking about as well is in terms of the different ways in which we frame cancelling um, is like uh, international government sanctions, for example, like we recently did an episode on SARS, check it out if you haven't, um, and where, you know, because of what the government was doing in Nigeria, you know, um, this caused a lot of, I guess, conversation online. And although people weren't necessarily calling for cancelling Nigeria, there was a conversation about whether the UK and other Western countries should put in sanctions, um, economic sanctions, to kind of show their uh, overt disapproval of what the Nigerian government was doing. So it just makes me think about the term cancel, whether we, the way that it's been, I guess, used, is it where, like, let's say the right wing using it in a kind of negative way because of they don't like the way that, you know, Twitter and other spaces are rallying around certain people's behaviours, but then failing to see how in general in society in various ways, we do show our disdain or we do cancel organisations or groups of people or even countries in various ways. I think it's really interesting that you actually highlighted how the civil rights movement, we could see that as an act of cancellation, right? And that's what they attempted to do. And I think it's really interesting just because at the moment, what I almost feel gets labelled as cancel culture is these instances that happen online that that usually tend to happen in a sphere like Twitter or Instagram, some sort of social media network where something is said or something is done and there's this whole outcry of people speaking about it and maybe responding to the person expressing their disdain for what has happened. And sometimes those instances are perceived as oh, the beginning or or the act of cancelling. Whereas if you think about the, the two examples that you just gave there with the civil rights movement and Daniela also when you were talking about the Me Too movement, um, actually the internet space has served a purpose in that maybe it's drawn people's attention to an issue at hand, maybe it's rallied people's support, maybe it's got people together. But 
it's only been the beginning, you know. There's been like whole massive efforts that have happened alongside that, which have led to these things. And I'm really and truly, I'm thinking about just because we're speaking about the Me Too movement, I'm thinking about R. Kelly and also Weinstein. So if you think to yourself, okay, those are two people who you can effectively say have to some extent for like quite large crimes. But you think to yourself, well, what went into that happening? It took months of people, high profile people coming out and speaking consistently and consecutively over like months for that to happen. And so if you're talking about real life cancellation, (laughs) I think that is a stronger effort than we perceive it to be at the moment where it's, it's, I just feel like cancel culture is used synonymously with this outcry uh, to just like liberals moaning. Thanks for listening to Soho Shortwave. If you want to hear the full versions of any of our shows featured, catch up on our Mixcloud. Just search Soho Radio. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to this podcast and tune in live at any time to SohoRadioLondon.com or get the app. This is a Soho Radio Productions podcast.